The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. It's the Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast with me, Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us. This week we're focusing again on the art market and looking at very different ends of it. We'll look at the results from one of the most hotly anticipated auctions in recent years, the David and Peggy Rockefeller sale, which took place earlier this week. We talk to an art market economist about what such sales say about the market as a whole, and we talk to a gallerist who has a small space in, of all places, Piccadilly Circus Tube Station. First, though, the Rockefeller auction. Regular listeners will know that in February we interviewed the Rockefeller archivist Peter Johnson about the collection of Peggy and David Rockefeller. Auctions have been taking place all this week, and I should say that we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, so if anything spectacular has happened since, then forgive us for not mentioning it. But the main event of the week was always going to be Tuesday night's auction of 19th and 20th century art. It featured 44 works by leading figures from Delacroix, through Corot, Manet, Monet, Gauguin, Picasso and Matisse and many more. And the auction, as expected, set a new record for a single owner sale, raising £646 for various charities designated by the late couple. The biggest sale of the night was a Picasso, Girl with a Flower Basket, a rose period painting from 1905, owned by Gertrude Stein and then acquired by David Rockefeller. It sold for $102 million in the sale room, rising to 115 with fees. Here's Peter Johnson talking about that painting in February. But it was a, a, a great story, the fact that this Girl with a Basket of Flowers had two owners in the 20th century. Uh, and that was it. And into the 21st century it makes it a remarkable thing. And it's a remarkable painting as well. Georgina Adam, who's the author of Big Bucks and Dark Side of the Boom, two books looking at the explosion and the excesses of the art market this century, is with me now. Georgina, it's $646 million. It has to be regarded as a big success, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yes. It's well, well over the pre-sale estimate. And of course, it's only the beginning because there's an enormous amount of Rockefeller uh, consignments to come as part of this huge 1,600 lot sale. And the idea is that it will probably fetch in total around 1 billion or even go over it. Is that right? Well, it's actually, it's a bit of a step up. You've still got to make another 350 million. Uh, and the rest of the consignments, uh, particularly things like furniture, silver, are not particularly fashionable. So uh, Christie's is being a little bit cautious about that. They don't like you to say a billion. We shall see. <laughs> now, um, just looking at the results from Tuesday night's uh, auction, it seems very front-loaded in the sense that all the big prices happen in the first, or most of the big prices happen in the first half, and then it sort of rather sags towards the end. Is that fair? Yes. I mean, I don't think that sagging entirely covers of Signac that's making 13 million, you know, or <laughs> or or a Kandinsky that makes 6.5 million. That did very well as well. But yes, compared to the fireworks at the beginning, uh, these huge prices that were made, 80 million, over 80 million for that wonderful, sensuous Matisse, um, the 35.1 million made for the, my particular favorite, the Gauguin La Vague, which was an extraordinary picture and went way over its estimate, which was published was, it was a, what they call a whisper estimate. It was on request, but it was seven to 10 million. Um, compared to those huge prices at the beginning, it's true that some of the works towards the end didn't do as well. Some of them went under estimate. But you have to think that there was really what the French call an embarras de richesse. There were so many good works 
coming on the market all in the same time. And it is conceivable that there was just too much and that buyers had to make the choice. And having spent, for example, 80 million on the Matisse, you know, they weren't able to muster enough firepower to um, bid up works towards the end of the sale. That's interesting. So what you're saying is if some of these works that didn't get stellar prices had appeared in other auctions and not surrounded by such a volume of great works, they might have made more money. Yes, these works were extraordinary. They'd been collected by David Rockefeller, who had a wonderful eye and who had um, a great love of art. And I think that if some of the pictures that didn't do quite so well towards the end of the sale had been sitting alone in another sale, they would have been the star of the sale and they might have done better. Uh, It was quite a It's quite challenging to put so many good pictures on the market in one go, even with this extraordinary stellar provenance. Before we get into the the works themselves, I'd like to get into this idea of the Rockefeller premium and the sort of marketing of the collection, the whole live like a Rockefeller idea that you see on Christie's website, lots of of, um, Christie's staff sort of talking about the works and, and saying if people owned it, they could live like a Rockefeller. It's basically saying it's a chance for these new collectors, for new money to gain something of the luster of old money. Is that is that right? Well, we've been there before, haven't we, with Duveen? So this is not new. Um, and you, you can't live like a Rockefeller. It's not possible. But you can sort of get a touched by a bit of this gold dust, can't you? This magic wand that you possess something that was in the Rockefeller collection. And that the fact that he bought it is, is a proof of, of quality as well, because he had the money and the eye and the desire to only own wonderful things. And he did. I think that in a way, Christie's was probably knocking down an open door in the sense that the Rockefeller provenance almost didn't need to be sold. The Rockefeller name is so well known that, and the quality of their holdings uh, meant that I think these pictures in a way were going to sell themselves. But of course, Christie's did do a remarkable job on the whole collection. And it was a very huge collection to sell. Now, um, Let's look at some of the works. The Picasso was was the top lot in the sense that it, it hammered at just over 100 million, 115 with fees. But there was no bidding war. And, and it seems absurd to say this. It, it It is absurd to say this, but for a 100 million picture. But but you sense there was a slight disappointment that it that it didn't go even higher, that it, there wasn't it, there wasn't this sort of dramatic sort of Leonardo effect that happened with this Picasso, perhaps. Yes. I mean, Rose period Picassos are very rare. This one was apparently not a Rockefeller favourite. Right. And in today's world, where we worry about paedophilia, where we worry about the Me Too, this this image is a, a little tiny bit problematic in the sense that it is apparently of a flower girl, a teenage flower girl who sold her body. Um, and... There's a contrast between this very knowing adult face and this this childish body. So I think that this this picture perhaps didn't perhaps get exactly the enthusiasm you might have thought of. Obviously, it wouldn't go to the Middle East because that sort of picture doesn't go to the Middle East. And I think even possibly Chinese buyers might have been a bit more uncomfortable with it, whereas they were obviously extremely comfortable with the water lilies. 
Indeed, we'll come to the Monet water lilies in a minute. With the Picasso, I'm thinking it's Picasso asserting a sort of radicalism from the grave because he wanted to depict the difficult life that he was experiencing in Paris at that time, and that included uh, destitute people, women that were working as prostitutes. And and that isn't necessarily going to look good on a rich person's wall, is it? No, that's true. But at the same time, I think that the Soutine show recently at the Courtauld had a picture of a little pâtissier, a little uh, pastry chef, very young child. And there was a lot of humanity in it. There was a lot of sympathy for his condition. And I'm not sure that you quite get the same feeling with this. I don't think there's that same compassion in this picture. And perhaps that's what's a little bit worrisome as well. Indeed. So let's look at the big successes then. I mean, the the two really big standout figures were records for Matisse and Monet. Um, They're sort of classic works by these artists. It's a Nice period Matisse, a very sumptuous, decorative um, uh, uh, reclining figure. And then Monet, it's it's water lilies, lilies, perhaps his most famous uh, image. So tell me about those. I mean, is that is that what you would have expected or were you did you did you find these figures surprising? No, not at all. I mean, Monet is the ultimate trophy, isn't it? Recognisable at 200 metres, uh, screams money, screams decoration, but is also so linked to the life, uh, to his garden. And uh, it has a universal appeal. It's a name that's known across the world. And these are images which are known across the world. So no, I think it's uh, 84.7 million, completely unsurprising, justified. And I do believe it went to an Asian um, client. As for the Matisse, how could you not like it? I mean, it's so sensuous. And Matisse's are very often these odalisks, and there are a number of them, but that Often there's the face isn't particularly well painted sometimes. Sometimes there are little things, whereas this one really had it all. She's sumptuous. Her face, her body is well painted. She's reclining there. It's a delicious picture. And there again, I think that price was really justified. Now, they were both sold in the auction room to Chin Lee, who's the deputy chair of Christie's Asia. And it was clear from the tour that this collection went on that that um, Christie's was absolutely targeting an Asian market. They clearly succeeded, haven't they? <laughs> absolutely, yes. Um, I think Asian bidding seems to have been very strong. Um, and a lot of these works, you know, they're iconic trophies. And I can see that, that Asia, probably China, is you know, the logical destination. It's interesting to read on the Christie's website to what was written by Rebecca Way from the um, from Christie's. She said that when the Rockefellers' Nanfeyes on Fleur Water Lilies in Bloom was on view in Hong Kong in November 2017, I lost count of the number of people who stopped to admire it, speechless. She added that key to its appeal is the fact that every lily in this 1914 to 17 painting by Claude Monet is shown in full blossom. For Asians, that's an auspicious sign. The Chinese have a saying that flowers in bloom bring good fortune, and the Chinese word for lily also suggests a peaceful or high harmonious union. So in one painting you have good fortune, harmony, peace and water, meaning it has particularly positive associations for Asian viewers. It's very good feng shui. So, I mean, this is all out of sort, isn't it? It's amazingly, we've talked about Christie's marketing in the past, about the way they marketed the Leonardo in a contemporary auction. They've really got this nailed down, haven't they, their marketing? Yes, and I think it's very interesting to point out these, this symbolism and how important it is to Asia, which we may not necessarily have the same references. And, for example, on their porcelains, uh, the, the, when you see different sorts of flowers, they mean something. Yes. And um, so I think that's a really interesting aspect of this sale. Now, Gauguin, even though they weren't 
records broken for Gauguin. He's, the two pictures by Gauguin that were in this auction actually were both vastly overestimate. Um, there was a flower painting and the picture that you talked about earlier of a sort of a dramatic wave. Now, um, uh, he seems to have been one of the great successes of this auction. Again, illustrating that certain artists are really uh, the sort of brand names of post-impressionism, as it were. Yes, I think also here you have to talk as well about the the aspect that the, the 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 impact of these two pictures. I mean, Gauguin obviously he's an extremely expensive artist. We know that uh, Gauguin was sold privately for over two hundred million. So here is an artist who's very rare on the open market. But these were also extraordinary images, particularly La Vague. I mean, this was absolutely amazing. It was obviously influenced by Japan with these little tiny figures scuttling away from this huge wave. You know where that comes from. Um, It's got a wall power, really extraordinary. And also the other, the flower piece is also very, very, the colouring is good and bold. Some of the Impressionist pictures in this sale were, were still that sort of classic Impressionism, which is quite soft focus. And I think today there is an aspect of taste. People really like these paintings. Obviously, the fact that they are by such a famous artist is important as well. But I think people do want that, that visual impact more than in the past. I mean, the colours in that uh, Gauguin flower painting are just extraordinary. They leap out from the wall. They're an incredible things. They're singing colours and that, I think, as well. But I think of the two, I mean, and obviously the price difference reflects it, but the, the La Vague of Gauguin is just a remarkable picture uh, with that slash of red on the right. It's so modern. Um, what, interestingly, Vian Bonnar, also post-impressionist artists, highly esteemed by artists and, and painters that followed them, performed less well in this sale. Both One work by each uh, sold above its upper estimate, but the others were very well below their lower estimates. So, for instance, there was a couple of Vuillard's, one that was estimated at 2 to 3 and sold at 1.4, and another was estimated at 5 to 7, which sold at 3.6. And then Bonnar, I think particularly importantly, there was a painting that for, that was recommended to the Rockefellers by a curator from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, and he said he'd have it once they'd finished with it as it as it were um and that was estimated at 10 to 15 uh and sold at 6.6 so there you know it's not that all post-impressionist artists are instantly going to be a success even with this rockefeller premium Mm. i think that what's happening here as well is you're seeing this concentration on a few names at the very top as well i mean they're, they're good pictures um possibly the estimates were possibly a little bit punchy, taking account of the the Rockefeller um, provenance, particularly for the Bonnard. So I think Vouillard and Bonnard perhaps are just slightly just under the top artists that people really are prepared to splash out enormously for. So these are sort of connoisseurs' pictures, essentially. Yes, I think so, yes. And as I say, they don't have quite possibly the wall power, and I think that's very important today. So are we saying that the pool of top artists, of the artists that really draw in collectors, is getting smaller and smaller? Uh, There's been research done, I think, by Artnet uh, that there's 25 artists that concentrate something like 50% roughly of all the sales at the top end. Uh, Probably some of these would be within those 25. But yes, I think we are seeing this extraordinary concentration and this is what's driving prices up. Georgina, thank you very much. Thank you.
Now, Georgina's latest book, Dark Side of the Boom, which is available at all good bookshops and online, looks at the excesses of the art market this century. And we thought the dizzyingly high prices fetched in the Rockefeller auction provided a good moment to pause and reflect on the wider market. I'm very pleased that Professor Rachel Pownall, the Chair of Arts and Finance at the School of Business and Economics at Maastricht University, joins me and Georgina now. Rachel, can headline events like the Rockefeller auction tell us much about the health of the market? And if so, what can it tell us? Absolutely. I think the um, the health of the market um, is highly dominated, as it were, by these um, these large sales and put very important sales in, in the art market. Um, and they give a very good indication of the of, of the overall art market. Um, so it's important that uh, uh, we don't lose sight by not focusing on on the top end of, of the market as well. So basically, if the top end is healthy, can that have a positive effect on everything else, in other words? I think so. I think in um, generally, um, if if the top end of the market is doing well, it also holds for the economy in general. Um, it's naturally going to have knock-on effects throughout the whole uh, art market, as as does the top end of the of the economy have knock-on positive knock-on effects for the uh, the whole of the economy in general. So it's a it's a it's it's a good barometer in general of 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 what's happening in in the market um, as well. And to what extent can we say that the art market reflects wider socio-economic patterns? In, in other words, wealth concentrated at the top, more insecurity below, mid-market struggle, struggles, etc. Well, I think the um, uh, the the art market, in a way, reflects very much what's happening in the overall economy. Um, you see. Um, High levels, obviously, of, grow, of growth and in high net worth individuals um, globally, and this high growth and will, of course, um, increase sales prices at the top end of the market. If you have an, um, an increasing number of millionaires, obviously worldwide, then they will naturally um, be buying at the more at the top end of the market, and this will this will help, of course, lift the um, the art market. One thing that the art market does seem to to show is this disparity um, that you have a very very concentrated and more concentrated in fact than the um, the the global wealth as as that is um, also distributed so I think it, it reflects to a certain extent what's happening globally um, and 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 as in as is actually very common in all industries you do have a, a very large concentration of often a very <laughs> small number of of companies and firms so it's a it was a fairly natural um, behavior or or pattern that we we tend to see in um, in various industries now we know that there are lots of mid-market galleries which who are struggling and um there have been quite a lot of closures in in major market centers like uh, london and new york um do you feel that the upper end of the market could do more to help out with those kind of situations? Could could the could the high end actually make active gestures to help with the lower end? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, as is healthy in any any uh, industry or any economy, any country, um, if there's a more balanced. Um, um, uh, situation where the top end of the market is not pulling away, accelerating too fast than um, uh, other ends uh, of than the rest of the market. Um, yeah, certainly, then the top end of the market can certainly do a lot to help. Also, with the uh, in in the mid size and the smaller 
smaller galleries. As we see in in countries, for example, where there is a lot of um, um, uh, you know uh, more levels of uh, equality, then you see that also that the the levels of growth and the level of knock on effect within an economy is also very strong. When you when you when you don't let the the top end of the market accelerate away from the bottom end of the market, and what we're seeing in the art market is higher growth levels at the top end of the market than actually at the at the lower end. As you correctly said, in the dealer market, this is also the case. Um, we saw this in the TFAF survey last year. We see this also in the UBS um, Art Basel report this year that there is um, um, that there are also closures at the at the lower end of of, of the market. And it's not all bad news. There's plenty of uh, areas of the market where there's there's a lot of the growth at the bottom end, um, but it, it is c- cause for concern in in the US and also the UK, where you see um, much larger disparity than in in other countries. I was intrigued by something you said in in an article in the art newspaper uh, just recently um, in Berlin. You said that we need to ensure that we don't let this disparity grow larger and larger because eventually the top end will fail too. Can you explain why? I think at a certain point that that we do have to watch because, of course, um, if 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 the top end of the market is um, growing. At, a, at the detriment of the lower end of the market, then you don't don't if you're not encouraging the smaller and the mid-sized galleries um, to to increase the numbers of um, new artists that they're they're well represented um, and you you're losing you're losing yeah, the heart of the art market as it were and at some point um, you have to be careful that the the market then doesn't that the top end of the market will not also suffer because of of the bottom end I mean it also depends a lot on the on the uh, the context of the country. I mean, a country like the UK, where a lot um, the the buyers um, tend to be more foreign, then the impact may, of course, be less than in a country um, where you've also got a lot of domestic demand as well. That's interesting. Um, now, uh, uh, in Berlin, the David's Werner, the dealer, came up with this idea. We don't know how spontaneous this was, but uh, let's call it the Zverna tax. Um, so at this New York Times Art Leaders Network in Berlin, which I know you were present at, he said, yes. he said, I do feel that something is wrong with the current system. It's not good that a few galleries are getting more and more market share and the younger galleries are having a harder time to compete. I wouldn't have any problem if we were to pay a little more, we the larger galleries, so that some younger galleries are supported and can show their work in the fair. So in other words, he's suggesting that, that the top galleries pay more so that younger so that which would subsidize the presence of younger artists at art fairs and he said that this would have to be an initiative that the art fairs would have to start and he said it was a little bit like a tax you make a little more money and you get you get taxed a little bit what do you make of this idea and is this sort of is is this is this encouraging that that dealers like Sverner at the top end are thinking about the, the wider market yeah, indeed, this was something that was mentioned during one of the panel sessions I was also attending. And um, it was raised actually by the New York Times themselves, one of the moderators, and they asked these, um, a, very, a couple of questions in an earlier panel. And then it was um, discussed again in this, in this later, in this later um, interview. And um, uh, yeah, so David Swin, uh, exactly, he, 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 he suggested that if you have then this higher, uh, a higher rate, of course, for um, larger galleries, 
um, then it would encourage the um, subsidise effectively then the smaller galleries within the art fair. To a certain extent, this happens at, uh, at various fairs. There are differentiated pricing occurring. If you have a larger stand, of course, then you'll naturally pay more for your booth than if you have a smaller uh, smaller stand as well. But this notion of actually then really <laughs> putting a lot more um, or subsidising a lot for smaller galleries, um, I have a few I have a few doubts how that would work at a at, within an art fair. Uh, first of all, um, the type of the type of gallerists that are attending art fairs are perhaps the ones not necessarily as much in need as other smaller and mid-sized galleries in the art market. Um, the very fact that they're able to also join um, these fairs means that they're um, doing you know pretty well to to start with. Um, there is of course the 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 process where you have smaller upcoming galleries which will naturally anyway pay a much smaller uh, lower rate. They also have a smaller booth and this is very encouraging. Uh, it was interesting to hear that um, the young uh, the the larger uh, galleries like David Sweener and it was also then seconded by uh, Pace Gallery Mark Glimke from pace um saying that they they would they would they would encourage um this process to um to help and i think this is very reflective of the art market in general um to encourage collaboration and to um the art markets in in general have always um, flourished historically through patronage and i think this uh, encouraging fair practices across the board is very Im- important um within the within the art market whether it's really a question for the art fairs uh, is also something to address um i think that it could be um, much more within the art world rather than just um, um, for art fairs to play a dominant role in this this type of process. And if that if, if that's the case, then who who needs to grasp the nettle? Who's, who 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 should have responsibility for ensuring greater fairness in the art market? Well, I think everybody plays their own role in um, making sure that they act fairly and responsibly. Um, auction houses, large galleries and dealers in general, they have um, an obligation to pay fairly for interns, for example, but also um, um, that they that they they bring up the the younger generation as they have benefited themselves um, uh, historically as well. So I think it's a very um, natural process to be to to want to to help in a society in the in the art world um, that each the larger galleries are, are willing and they see they see that to a certain extent that they've benefited um slightly at the expense of some of the the smaller and mid-sized galleries who have uh, provided a lot of support in um upcoming artists and providing representation and so forth so um i i, I think it's it's a matter of fair play actually i i'd like to actually come back to the rockefeller sale <clears throat> because it was completely guaranteed. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, 13 of the 44 lots in the first um, auction, the evening auction, had a third-party guarantee as well on them, i.e. somebody outside the company had agreed to buy at a certain price. And I'd be interested in in your opinion about whether these guarantees are pushing up prices to a level that is perhaps not, doesn't entirely reflect market demand. It's a very interesting point that you raised, Georgina. I think that the the notion of having a lot of guarantees at the high end of the market certainly does um, maintain um, that these high levels are 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 maintained. Um, it, it's whether it really inflates prices much more um, is 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 debatable. Um, of course, you have. Um, 
collectors who were in any case willing to um, to to pay for the guarantee in order um, to uh, be present at the at the at the sale and and buy the piece at the guaranteed price. Um, and and it's very it's a very illiquid market at the top end of the market. So in that respect, then the guarantees, of course, encourage and, and aid the, the the liquidity issue as well. Um, there is a slight conflict of interest, of course, if you have auction houses um, um, gaining as a percentage of the increase in the the sale over and above the guarantee itself. Actually, mm. do you think? I mean, obviously, it's it's it can only be a really resounding success this sale, and we've really only just started because there are a lot more to come. Um, but do you think that possibly there was? almost too much of a good thing in the sale despite this stellar provenance? Do you think that we did see one or two works of art going underestimate? Do you think it's possible that the market, there is a point at which the market just can't absorb so many expensive works of art? Um, potentially at some point there is. A, there is. I don't know if we're necessarily actually all that close to it just because we do have such disparity in the in global wealth. And um, there's, a, there's many countries, of course, where we do have um, a very a large number of high net worth individuals and they're they are growing and if as long as art is something that uh, they still have a, a high demand for and there's a taste for um in society then i think we'll we it's not as though we've reached the the top end of uh, of the market um as yet well so you're saying that it's going to keep going rachel I think if the global inequality is as as it is and actually continues to create this greater disparity between effectively the rich and the, and the poor, then I don't think the art market will um, suffer um, in, until there's any major change in in perhaps uh, tax laws in various countries um, with issues of tax havens and so forth, where money is obviously um, um, put aside or out of out of the system. Until some of these issues are perhaps addressed in uh, in the economy, then I certainly don't think that the art market will, will will suffer at the top end, at least. So I've just got one more question for you, Rachel. Talking about the, the galleries, and I totally take your point that the, 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 the ecosystem needs the midsize and the smaller galleries. But uh, Vanessa Carlos, who's um, a well-known more emerging gallery here. I think she would qualify herself as a, as a small gallery. She thinks that that the whole gallery model is bust, that it's it's out of date, and that finally doing something like the the quotes Zwerner tax quotes is really actually just putting a sticking plaster on on mm-hmm. a system that's got to change much more radically. What do you think about that? Yeah, I I agree that I think the Zwerner tax, in the sense of of it just occurring at the art, art fairs, um, is is will not really address any of the of the issues. And um, my point also that you're really you, if you're only redistributing between the the top end galleries anyway, who are, who manage to attain a um, a position at one of the the top fairs, then you're not really helping the 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 whole e- mm. um, ecosystem mm. of the art world, mm. as as she correctly points out. So it's the mid sized and the smaller galleries that don't have that representation. They also don't have anybody working for them, lobbying for them, um, and and the, there are obviously some some other art fairs, but there's there's no body which is really interested in in helping them. So I, I don't believe that the the, the, the tax that was discussed in um, uh, the Art Leaders Network um, conference is, is necessarily the right way forward. But I think greater collaboration between 
larger dealers, smaller dealers and mid-sized dealers in other forms, which is perhaps more innovative and, and, and more of a personal choice who you team up with and work with, should be encouraged. And I think that will really help um, uh, the art market. I think amen to that from all of us here. Absolutely. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. You can read more on the Rockefeller auction online at theartnewspaper.com. Now, among the cafes and tourist shops around the circular ticket hall of Piccadilly Circus, one of London's busiest tube stations, is an unlikely site, an art gallery. It's called Soft Opening and it's run by Antonia Marsh and she joins me now. Antonia, can you tell us a bit more about Soft Opening and, and how you came to find this space in Piccadilly Circus? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, it kind of happened accidentally. Um, I literally found it when I was getting the tube. So I was like walking down the stairs and I actually saw one of the other spaces. So there are in the station lots of other empty spaces and one of them is kind of like uh, kind of on the edge and it's much, much smaller than my space. And uh, I just thought to myself, like after a few, um, like walking by a few times, I was like, wow, how interesting to put an artwork behind that. How, what would that do to the artwork? And um, how easy or difficult would it be to rent a space like that? Um, and so, yeah, we just got in touch with the agent that represents TFL and six months later and a lot of paperwork, we had a lease. So um, T- we should say TFL Transport for London who yeah, run yeah, the Yeah, yeah, they're Transport for London. So they're our landlord, I guess. But um, we just rent it just like any other kind of shop space down there. Um, and and how yeah. do you convince, I mean, I, you know, that it's one thing seeing a space and contacting yeah, yeah. Transport for London. How do you convince them that the tube travellers are going to want to look at this stuff and engage with it? And how do you convince them that it's a good idea? Well, I think we just sent them um, a presentation of the work that I show normally. Um, and I guess it was just pretty diverse, the range of work that I show. And also um, a lot of it's by young artists. So I think that's a draw. Um but they were really open to, you know, what we were about to do. And um, I think also a lot of the other spaces down in the station are really broad in what they do. Like there's a luggage store, there's a watch repair, there's a sweet shop. So why not have a gallery down there? You know, I, I wouldn't see why it would be a bad idea. <laughs> so can you give us a flavour of some of the other projects that you've done in the past? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess I started as an independent curator Um and I've done about 35 exhibitions, all in different spaces. Um, some of them have been one night shows in like bars in New York. Other shows have been much longer, more kind of um, formal group shows in commercial galleries. Like um, at, it, there's a space called Cobb Gallery in London where I did a show last September. Um, and I think, and all of the shows were with kind of young emerging artists. Um, and a lot of them were, you know, with artists that maybe would see themselves as being like outside of the art world or not yet a part of um, kind of like the commercial art world discourse. And um, I think I kind of just got to a point where I'd done so many shows all in different spaces. It felt like a time to maybe hone in on one space. And um, I think, you know, limitations can sometimes be productive. So even though it was great doing shows at different spaces, I constantly had to relearn the infrastructure of a gallery or whatever space, whether it's who's working there or what the wall type is um, and all the nooks and crannies. So for me, finding um, a kind of more permanent space it means I can work, you know, much more closely with artists. It means I know the space much better. And in that way, I can kind of be even more creative in my curating. I'm really intrigued in how this relates to 
the wider ecosystem of the art world mm -hmm. because it seems to me that you in a way are operating in a totally separate zone mm -hmm. to the rest of the art world mm -hmm. but at the same time are it, are you finding that your artists through showing with you are then going on in to enter into that art world are you finding that you're collaborating more with the sort of if you like the more official art world as well well it's really honestly like a new it's really a new thing for me to feel like a part of any kind of art world um but I think that might be something to do with having a space, like a physical space. I do find myself putting on um, like different shoes all the time, you know, like um, I think starting as a curator and now having to sell artwork is a weird jump to make. Um, and I think also the nature of the space is much more like a kind of experimental project space. But the way which we program our shows um, and the way in which we uh, work with clients um, follows a more kind of traditional gallery structure and calendar. Um, so there are kind of moments where we're engaging with the contemporary art world um, more formally. But um, at the same time, I think w w as a space, we are trying to um, leave ourselves open to something a bit more kind of um, yeah, experimental or a bit um, weird. <laughs> I was intrigued that in a previous interview you uh, you quote two uh, sort of seminal projects from the 1990s that were very sort of rough and ready and that, namely the shop which was a, a the project yeah. by Sarah Lucas and Tracy Emin yeah. and Hans Ulrich Obrist's kitchen, uh, kitchen mm. exhibition which was literally an exhibition in his kitchen mm. in which he invited lots of quite well-known artists actually to, mm. to work with him but what what I was intrigued by was that you're interested in those kind of itinerant kind mm. of makeshifty kind of shows are you trying to sort of get into a certain spirit from that time yeah definitely I mean I've, I always quote those two projects because um, I think they're really interesting for two different reasons like Hans Ulrich's show I just am really um, I'm always really um, impressed by that kind of oh my goodness, I so desperately have to do a show. Where can I do it? I'm going to do it in my kitchen. You know, it's that kind of like absolute desperation to show artwork that I think um, I have, I certainly share. And I think a lot of, um, you know, curators or artists I'm interested in also um, demonstrate. Um, and also, I mean, Hans Ulrich's curating is really interesting because even though he's now curating at massive institutions, um, he has veins that run through it that are that kind of a dem like demonstrative of his style of curating so uh he always has artists title his exhibitions or um and also he works with the same artists over and over and I think that's something I'm really interested in so there's a longevity in that um and then the shop I mean I'm just mad on <laughs> I'm mad on that project I think it's like absolutely brilliant because it uses it kind of toys with this idea of the uh, the, commod the commodification of the artwork um and it kind of like is quite tongue-in-cheek and I love that attitude um and I think definitely with Piccadilly with soft opening in in the station um those spaces down there I mean they're glass fronted they're shop spaces they're they're commercial leases um and it's in this hub of shopping, tourism, and actually it's in the kind of commercial hub of the art world. So by putting all these artworks behind glass, I'm, there's definitely a kind of tongue-in-cheek um, kind of semi-critique of this situation that's happening. Um, and that's something I was absolutely trying to channel. Um, and, as it, you know, it's, it's also 
pretty makeshift in its attitude because it's kind of occupying almost like a hermit crab, you know, this new home. Um, so that's kind of how I feel about it, I think. That's a nice illusion. Tell me about the um, how the artists feel about this space because obviously they they, they will necessarily have restrictions in terms mm. of what they can show because there will be TFL restrictions which right. tell them they can't show, I, mean, I imagine, no nudity, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Knowing what they can't even on an art poster of a historic artwork show yeah. nudity. So um, how are they negotiating that? Are they enjoying negotiating that? Well, I think those particular restrictions are not really a concern for the artist because yeah I mean I wouldn't program someone who maybe works in with a lot of like nudity or swear words necessarily because I know that it wouldn't you know the space wouldn't show their work the best it could um but the limitations that artists are more interested in with this space I think are spatial um so it doesn't really bother an artist if they can't like have a swear word here or there I think what's more interesting is what it means to have this these four panels of glass in, in front of their work and what it means to um, position it in that way and what it means to work with a space that's only 15 foot by four foot. We can only see an artwork from front on. Um, and also but, in the audience. I mean, you're, mm. you're on, on the one hand, a massive audience, but also a fast moving audience. So they have to, have to mm. negotiate all these parameters that actually aren't sort of typical gallery parameters, if you like. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm obsessed with those. Like, I mean, I, I think it's so interesting watching how people interact with the space um, and artists are thinking about that. Like that's someone asked me the other day what kind of in terms of programming joins all the shows up and I, I actually think it's the interaction with the space itself being so idiosyncratic and actually how an audience interacts with it um is really fascinating to artists because you know I mean even at our openings <laughs> which like are very very unofficial we kind of just like hang out and stand in front of it and have a look um you know what's really interesting is that uh everybody that comes along just stands and faces this faces the artwork so because of its aspect ratio and because of the glass it everyone behaves as if it's a screen um and you know at a normal opening everyone's standing with their backs to the artworks whereas in this uh, case everyone's facing the work and having like spending a lot more time with it but i mean i think it's really interesting how an audience might uh you know only spend half a millisecond looking at a show in the station but then like they might spend two hours looking at another day you know and I have no way of tracking that um my sister was in marketing and she kind of said to me how do you know that this is successful like how do you know that it's working and I was like well I don't really know but I didn't I definitely didn't you know I didn't think of that like that wasn't my end goal um and, and tell me about how you how you know we're talking about the market here. So are you able to sell work and are you able to survive? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. I'm like a curator who's now trying to be a dealer or commercial gallerist. Um, and I get asked all the time if it's a project space or a gallery. I don't necessarily think those distinctions are particularly useful to me. Um, I'm just giving it my best shot and seeing how it goes. We've got the lease for three years and I have sold artworks from the space and I have sold artworks to collectors I've worked with before um but I've also sold artworks to someone who was on their daily commute and like wrote to the email address on the website um so there's a real like democratization of um collector I think which is really exciting to me um and yeah I think we'll see how it goes I mean it's not you know it's all it's up to me as well to like really work hard at, at you know it's I'm not in the gallery every day so um 
I guess it's just a learning curve, but um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. I've definitely got this like funny analogy of the Chanel Couture show. So should I tell you? Go on. Okay. <laughs> so in the Chanel Couture show, they have like this runway of all the couture and then behind the scenes they have the ready to wear that's for sale so I kind of am looking at the space in a similar way where the shows are really installation heavy and you know there's maybe two three four artworks but then behind the scenes I have on consignment like many more that I can show um, and that I can send out digitally because I think so much art is actually sold not through exhibitions but through like pdfs and um, sending things out that way. So, well, that's a, that's a that's a model that's happening in art fairs. It's a model that's happening in gallery mm. shows all across the art world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can see why it would work. Yeah. So, tell me about the show that you opened this week. Well, so this week we opened a show um, by a painter based in LA called Ariana Papa de Metropolis, um, and it's her first time showing in Europe. So, we're really excited about that. And she paints uh, giant, pretty giant canvases, oil paintings of interior spaces that she. She's almost lifted from uh, Californian 1960s dream home magazines. But each of the paintings has a watermark or stain over it. So it kind of acts, water has like these very kind of holy religious properties. um, And it's seen as a portal in many different religions and spiritualities, I guess. Um, And for Ariana, this water stain kind of acts as a portal going into the interior in the painting, but that's also reversed. So in the exhibition space, we've got mirrors, which obviously reflects, it's like the pool of Narcissus. We've got an aquarium in the space um, and yeah, just various kind of different installation elements that draw out the kind of analogies that she's looking at in her work. And so it sounds to me like it's going to be an enticing thing for people on their commute to spot as they walk past. Yeah, totally. I think it'll um, it'll look like a little aquarium. It'll be quite weird. And I think um, hopefully people enjoy seeing that kind of thing. Great. Well, Antonia, thanks so much for joining us. Mm, Of course. Thank you for having me. Ariana Papadimetropolis' Sunken Gardens is at soft opening until the 3rd of June. And that wraps it up for this week. Don't forget that the May print edition of the art newspaper is out now with a special report on the Royal Academy as it plans to open its new building project marking its 250th anniversary. And you'll hear more about the Academy on next week's podcast. In the meantime, do tell us what you think of the podcast on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Music